You're listening to a podcast from the House of Literature in Oslo, presenting adapted versions of lectures and conversations featuring international writers and thinkers. You can find more information about the House and our events on our website. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to tonight's conversation between Lynn Stalsberg and Caroline Criado-Perez. My name is Daniel Ruckold, and I work with the artistic program here at the house. Caroline Criado-Perez is an award-winning and best-selling author and campaigner. Among her many feats and accolades are her books, Do It Like a Woman and Change the World, and Invisible Women, Exposing Data Bias in a World Designed for Men, the book that brings us here tonight, and is now out in Norwegian translation by Gudel Dimmen. Invisible Women is a remarkable achievement in combating the everyday sexism that surrounds and affects us all. In it, she presents a handful of practical cases of everyday sexism and zooms out to the general level. She discusses large and obvious cases of sexism, as well as the wealth of tiny transgressions and oversights that individually might be ignored, but together form a disturbing pattern. In what is an incredibly insightful and engaging book, Claro Perez exposes and grapples with this pattern and its effects, effects that the recent pandemic unfortunately made even clearer. And to talk with Perez this evening, we have invited the journalist and an author, Lynn Stalsbeck. She has herself written many books on and around feminist topics and feminist history, the latest being Ette Pandemien, or After the Pandemic, and is a huge admirer of Criado Perez's work. So please join me in welcoming Lynn Stalsbeck and Caroline Caro Perez. Now I can't even see you anymore. There are so many of you. I haven't seen this many people here in ages, since before the pandemic, I think. So I just told Caroline to take it personally. (laughs) (laughs) And I was thinking of asking the men to raise their hand, but I can't see you anymore. Uh, but there, there, there weren't so many men here, most, most, most women. Right. Uh, well, I mean, that's quite normal for me. So. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so the men carry a huge responsibility. Take this out to your manhood after. <laughs> well, Caroline, uh, we have to start by digging into your book, uh, because maybe not everyone has read it yet. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's for sale <laughs> outside later. Uh, but as a feminist myself, uh, I, I have done my share of counting. You know, I've been counting women in the media, counting women in politics, counting women in academia, uh, in popular culture. Um, but your book does something different mm-hmm. than this. It's like on a complete different level. Mm-hmm. So please, please introduce your level in the book. Yeah, I mean, I think that this different level of counting um, was why I wrote the book, you know, because as you say, for such a long time, we've been used to talking about the underrepresentation of women in politics, in the media, in films. Um, and, and you can always kind of explain that away by saying, well, this is history. You know, this is because women didn't have as many opportunities. They weren't being educated to the same degree. Um, women don't want to go into politics. Um, but you can't make those arguments for why we aren't um, collecting data in uh, in medicine on women, why we aren't collecting data on women in economics. Um, and, and those were what really shocked me. You know, I found that incredibly shocking. I think we're so used to talking about um, the representation of women in culture or the lack of representation of women in culture that it's just something that we're used to, and it's also something that we're used to seeing. It doesn't shock us. 
it is incredibly shocking to know that, for example, women are more likely to be misdiagnosed if they have a heart attack because doctors are not as good as diagnosing heart attacks in women because um, the, the, the classic symptoms, the um, other sort of diagnostic thresholds, like when they do measurements of certain proteins in your blood or, you know... Um, well, other things that in your in your body that 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 demonstrate whether or not you're having a heart attack, they're based on um, data that we've collected in men, so they don't work as well for women, and so women are more likely to be misdiagnosed and more likely to die. And so, to discover that this is something that isn't just having an impact on women's uh, careers um, and sort of general lives, but actually, it's it can be a matter of life and death, um, was incredibly shocking to me. So I felt that I needed to write about it because I couldn't believe that this was something that people didn't know, right? And right, you did indeed, because uh, this book of yours is filled with examples. I mean, there are literally hundreds of examples of, of the, the data collections going, uh, the bias data mm -hmm. collection. Why did you feel the need to have all these examples? Is that because the, the devil is in the pattern, so to speak? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I wanted to demonstrate that this was systematic. And, you know, it was really how, how I ended up writing the book was really a decade worth of me sort of subconsciously collecting all these examples in my head until, you know, the, the final thing that, like, prompted me, that sort of pushed me over the, the edge to be like, I have to write about this, so I'm going to lose my mind, was the, the fact that we weren't collecting data on women's bodies in medicine. Um, you know, but it really started for me um, in my mid-20s, which is when I went to university. And um, I wasn't a feminist at all at the time. I was actually anti-feminist. Um, what? That's... <laughs> <laughs> Why? Um, so um, I think it's I think it's very normal to be anti-feminist, actually. Um, you know, because I was a teenager in the 90s, and I don't know what the 90s was like in Norway. I know you're all much more progressive and better than we are in the UK. But in the UK, feminism was really embarrassing in the 90s. No one was a feminist. Mm. Um, feminism was for um, really just, like, screechy women who um, couldn't cope with with the world basically and um you know I didn't need feminism feminism made me look bad it made me look like I was weak and I needed extra help and feminism suggested that I was like other women I was like I'm not like other women you know I'm much better than other women I'm like a man um right I I'm I I, I can take a joke um and I'm interested in politics and I'm intellectual and like you know my big fear was that I people would see me and see that I was female and treat me like a woman and instead of thinking, oh, maybe those feminists have a point. I thought, I'm just not like them. Um, so, but that's not actually that unusual, certainly in mm. the UK. Um, and and it, so, yeah, it wasn't until I went to university, um, still not a feminist, and um, I had to read this book called Feminism and Linguistic Theory. And in the book, um, which is a great book, but buy my book first. Um, <laughs> um, the, uh, the, the, the author was writing about the use of the generic masculine in language. So he to mean he or she, man to mean humankind. Mm -hmm. And I started reading it, you know, rolling my eyes, like, here we go again, you know, because I'd heard this argument before. And again, I just found it embarrassing. Like, this is what feminists care about. I mean, come on, we've got bigger problems in the world than, you know, using he to refer to women. Everyone knows it's gender neutral, get a grip. Um, 
And, uh, but then the author went on to point to these studies that show that when we read these words, when we hear these words, we picture men. And this blew my mind mm. because it wasn't until I read that that I realized that's what I was doing. I was picturing men. And I was just so shocked that I hadn't noticed that. I hadn't noticed that, that, I was, that that's what I was doing. And as soon as I noticed that, you know, I started thinking about all these other times where I'm also picturing men. Um, you know, when I think of a lawyer, when I think of a doctor, when I think of a politician, I'm picturing men. And so this was really, really shocking for me and just totally changed my outlook. And I think that because that was the way I came into feminism, I was primed to notice it in other areas. Mm -hmm. So I started noticing it and building up without sort of meaning to this thesis you know, so the next thing I went uh, after that degree, I went and I studied behavioral economics and feminist economics and, you know, discovered that the whole economy, which is also presented as gender neutral, like we don't even use the generic masculine when we talk about the economy, but we should, um, is, is also designed around um, a, a typical male lifestyle pattern. And we don't collect data on the unpaid care work that women do that is a massive contributor to the economy and without which the formal economy would fall apart, as we saw during COVID. Um, but because we don't count it, because we don't value it, um, it, it, the way we allocate resources doesn't account for it. Interestingly enough, I discovered this recently, Norway actually used to um, include women's unpaid care work in their economic accounts, um, but they had to stop doing it because the rest of the world um, wasn't. And mm. GDP does not include women's unpaid care work. So Norway, so, so Norway was like very progressive, um, but then you became as terrible as the rest of us. Um, so, so yeah, so I was picking up this. And then the next thing I did is I went and I did some volunteering with a female asylum seeker charity in the UK. And there came across how um, female asylum seekers, it's much harder for them to claim asylum than male asylum seekers because the UN Convention on Refugees, like the, the legal system is set up around the way mm. men tend to experience persecution. Um, so things like you need to flee the country, leave, you know, yeah, flee the country that you're trying to escape before you can claim asylum. Um, that's much harder for a woman to be able to do because women are less likely to be able to get a visa to travel legally for all sorts of reasons, like, you know, less likely to be employed in the formal economy. Um, in some countries, women can't travel without a male guardian. And then, but the biggest one, of course, is that you can't just turn up to a country and say, I'm being persecuted. You have to show how that particular persecution fits a number of boxes, like religious persecution, political affiliation. Um, and of course, women can be persecuted for those reasons. But the number one reason that women get persecuted is because they're women. And that's not a good enough reason um, to be able to claim asylum. Um, so I was sort of going through my life, getting more and more angry <laughs> and more and more frustrated that everyone acted like we were talking gender neutrally when it was abundantly clear that we were talking about men. And I just kept coming back to how I hadn't noticed it. You know, all those years ago, recognizing it myself, I thought I was talking gender neutrally and I realized that I wasn't. Um, and then, as I said, you know, I came across the healthcare data and I was just like, that's it. <laughs> I can't take this anymore. You know, that, that we're acting like healthcare is gender neutral and it isn't. It's so, so dominated by male data to women's huge detriment. You know, I mentioned heart attacks, but we're, we're uncovering more and more all the time of how um, all sorts of diseases manifest differently in women, all sorts of measures that we've thought 
um, represent a gender-neutral, healthy body, and actually it's set at the wrong level for women. Uh, so women's um, diseases are being missed. Um, all sorts of diseases that are more likely to affect women, we know far less about. Um, treatments often don't work as well for women. And this is all because we've been testing things mainly in men. And it's not just in humans, it's also in animals and in cells. And the re I mean, that's kind of staggering. Um, the, one of the big reasons that's given for why we don't um, study women is women are too complicated. Um, women's working patterns, I know, 50% of the population is just too difficult, okay? Um, let's study the nice, easy people. Um, so women's working patterns are too complicated. Women's bodies are too complicated, right? So they say, we can't study uh, women because the menstrual cycle will interfere with the results. Well, yeah, it will. <laughs> and given that's something that is in 50% of human bodies, maybe you want to know what that impact will be. So like, for example, um, you know, the menstrual cycle can interfere with antipsychotics, with antidepressants, with heart medication. So like women are more likely to experience um, heart rhythm abnormalities that are induced by drugs. It's more likely to happen during the first half of the menstrual cycle. Seems to me like something you might want to know before giving someone this, this drug. Um, so, so that excuse obviously makes no sense, but it also doesn't explain why we're studying male cells, because cells don't have a menstrual cycle. Mm. Um, but we are studying male cells, and that also matters, because there are different responses according to the sex of the cells. So one study that I wrote about in Invisible Women, which was done in 2016, which unusually did look at male and female cells, and even more unusually, sex disaggregated its data. Um, they exposed male and female cells to estrogen and then it exposed them to a virus. And they found that the female cells were able to use the estrogen to fight off the virus. The male cells were not able to. Now, if that had been a classic trial that was done only in male cells, we would have concluded, oh, well, estrogen doesn't do anything and not have bothered studying any further and it wouldn't have progressed animal and human trials. Um, so you read a study like that and you think, how many treatments that would have worked for women have we missed out on because they didn't do anything for men at the cell trial stage? And then you bear in mind that one of the number one reasons um, that, you know, they, collect, they do collect data on um, when drugs don't work for whatever reason, if they're dangerous or they just simply have no effect. And that's one of the number one reasons um, for, for drugs having an adverse effect in women is it just doesn't work. Mm. There is, there is one person in this, uh, in, in, in everything you mentioned, whether it's asylum seeking or whether it's uh, medicine or whether it's uh, linguistics or your own bias, it's uh, the reference man. <laughs> he shows up in your book, uh, the reference man. And uh, I'm thinking within science, because your book is also some sort of critique of science and scientists, all these bright people, you know, mm. how could they be so blindsided and go for their reference man in all, in, in all this area? How, how did he come into to being? Yeah, well, I mean, we all are. I think we mostly don't even notice that we're doing it. How else do you explain it? I mean, look, the two explanations are either these scientists, these engineers, these economists, economists hate women and want us to die, <laughs> or... <laughs> The explanation I prefer <laughs> is that they just haven't noticed that they're doing it because we just don't notice because we hide it behind behind this cloak of gender neutral language. Mm. You know, so we don't talk about a male car crash test dummy. We talk about a car crash test dummy. It is a male car crash test dummy. Mm. Um, but that's not how we refer to it. We don't mark the male. We allow men to occupy the gender neutral spot. And that allows us to hide 
what we're doing. And, and it's not a sort of deliberate hiding. It's just mm. we're so used to thinking of men as gender neutral, right? Like, so one of the examples that I always think is really instructive on this is stab vests. So Sorry? Stab vests, like body armour. Oh, yeah. Okay. So um, when emergency service workers like police or whatever are given issued a stab vest, it tends to be what's called a unisex stab vest. Um, and <laughs> some people know where we're going here. Um, so, and this unisex stab vest is designed for a body without breasts. It's designed for a body with bigger shoulders. Um, and you give it to women and say, here's your unisex stab vest. And women are meant to say, great, you know, I put my unisex body into my unisex stab vest. Now, if you turn that on its head and say, we're going to design unisex stab vests, that are designed for the unisex body that has breasts, and you gave that to men, they would obviously say, but this is ridiculous. A body with breasts isn't unisex, which it isn't. <laughs> but somehow we don't notice it when it's the male body because we're so used to thinking of what is male as gender neutral. Um, I can't actually remember your question, but I hope that answered it. <laughs> I think it was in there somewhere. <laughs> can't remember myself. I want to just go into one more example before I have some other questions. Uh, a bit more, more on another angle. But that's the thing with the playgrounds, because I can see that it's a lot of young people here and you might have kids. Mm. Uh, and that was an example that really made an impression on me because I can see it from my kitchen window every day looking mm. out on the schoolyard. Mm. Uh, what is the thing about the sexist playground for the kids <laughs> um yeah so the playgrounds is is a really interesting example um of how designing public spaces without thinking about gender because this what we're talking about here really is a gendered issue not a sex mm. issue mm. um which is about how we bring up boys and girls differently um and this was discovered um in vienna uh where they kind of amazingly in the 1990s, there's this amazing woman called Eva Kyle, probably mispronounced her name. And um, she basically um, pioneered gender mainstreaming in public, uh, public planning. Um, and she started by collecting data in the 1990s. And one of the things that they looked at was parks. And they noticed when they looked at parks and who was using parks, they noticed that girls and boys were using parks more or less equally until about the age of eight. And then suddenly the girls stopped coming. And so they were really curious about why this was, which in itself is kind of amazing because most of the time we just think, oh, well, the girls just don't want to come, whatever. Um, but they, they thought, well, maybe there's something else going on. And uh, what they found was that the problem was that these parks were just one big space And the boys were dominating the space and the girls didn't want to compete with the boys for the space. So they just opted out. Instead of trying to compete, they just were like, we're not even going to try. Um, and so what they, they ran a couple of pilot projects where they subdivided into some slightly smaller spaces and they found that the girls all came back mm -hmm. as soon as they had a space where they didn't have to compete with the boys for space. Now, like, that... In, in a sense, is a, is a good news story because there's a problem and here's a solution um, and it's not a difficult solution. On the other hand, of course, it's really sad, you know, what that says about us as a society that the girls and the boys won't play together after the age of eight and that we now need to keep give them separate spaces. Mm -hmm. So, like, that's not 
that's not the solution that you'd hope for in the long term. But what I, I guess the way I feel about it is the the girls who are girls right now, they don't have the long term to wait for, for us to figure out society and stop having these ridiculous divisions. So we need to be able to provide space for them to be outside and play and enjoy themselves and be active rather than waiting for the hopeful, hopefully the future that will come where <laughs> these gendered differences just don't matter anymore. Mm. Tomorrow that is. Yeah, sure. Yeah. <laughs> Once everyone's read the book, then yeah. it'll all be fine. <laughs> a couple of days then, it's a book. <laughs> um, I first heard about you in about around 2015, I think, when you started some campaign for getting a woman on the British banknotes. Mm -hmm. uh, and the reason why I heard about you wasn't because of your campaign. It was because of the harassment mm -hmm. that you received in the aftermath of mm -hmm. that. Uh, which was everything from, you know, the Twitter, Twitter storm to death threats and rape threats, of course, goes with the territory. Uh, wh why was that? What, what was so triggering about wanting a, a female face on the banknotes? Yeah, I mean, um, obviously I would say this, but I think it was the default male. It was reference man's fault. Um, <laughs> um, but I genuinely do think that, you know, I think that the issue was that some men, because we live in a, in a world where men oc occupy the gender-neutral spot, so men go without saying, so we're not articulating how many men there are in all these spaces, including on the banknotes. Um, they're just seen as neutral human beings, mm. whereas women are seen as women, and therefore not men. Um, and so they represent um, a challenge to you know, what men think of as probably being fairly equal because they don't notice that there are so few women. Um, and, and this was kind of articulated to me by one of the men who tweeted me. This, he wasn't sending me a rape threat, um, which was a relief. Um, <laughs> but he was very angry and he said, but women are everywhere now, um, as like his argument for why do you need to do this? And... Um, you know, clearly we're not. Otherwise, I wouldn't have to be running the campaign for one, <laughs> one woman out of the four banknotes. The rest were men. Um, and the, the fourth one was going to be a man. So it was going to be all men. So I was like, can we just have one, just one woman? Like, I could have argued for two women. That would have been really radical. 50% <laughs> representation. Well, I was, you know, I was cautious. I went for one woman. Um, and, and, but he clearly believed that. That's, how he experienced it. He experienced it as women being everywhere, despite that clearly, objectively not being the case. And I think that that's, that's a really important insight, you know, and that's one of the reasons I feel it is so important to challenge um, the default male everywhere, including banknotes, including statues, including all these places that may seem trivial because they form part of our mental landscape. And they are the reason behind, in my opinion, how you end up thinking it's completely normal to have cars tested on a male body as if it represents a human body or a unisex stab vest being designed around a body without breasts. So all the ridiculous ways that we have of designing things around men and thinking that that's normal and gender neutral. It's because we're so used to men being gender neutral everywhere. Mm. But beside the, the harassment and the, the angry uh, part of the, of the men, <laughs> what kind of response did you get, for instance, from the scientific community? Uh, to the book? Yeah, I mean, are they responding uh, 
with curiosity and openness or, or what? Mostly, was, yeah. yeah. I mean, I certainly haven't had any angry letters from scientists. <laughs> <laughs> uh, mostly they've been really supportive. And actually one of the, I've had some really lovely experiences actually with scientists. So there was one guy who um, researches Alzheimer's um, uh, at the University of Manchester. And Alzheimer's is a female-dominated uh, condition. And we still don't really know why. Like, obviously, part of it is that women tend to live longer, but that doesn't explain all of it. It does. I think it doesn't even explain most of it. Um, anyway, so we we still don't know exactly why that is. Um, but he was um, he suddenly realised after reading the book that all the data that he was coding um, was presented with male as the default and female as an effect. Um, and the thing that he said was really interesting about that was that data, of course, is normally presented in alphabetical order. So you would think F comes before M um, or K, as it is in Norwegian, also comes before M, H-I-J-K-L-M. Yes, just before M. <laughs> um, and, and he was like, how did I never notice that before? And so, and, and, you know, of course, the thing that makes it really interesting as well is it's normally presented in alphabetical order, which means that someone went in there and made male the default. Mm. Um, anyway, so he said he went and redid 230 pages of code to make female the default, um, i.e. to just put it back into alphabetical order, which was really interesting. And another uh, really memorable um, example was a, a, a woman actually got in touch with me saying, I used to actually be one of those scientists until I read your book, who was like, oh, do we have to include females? They're so <laughs> variable, it's so annoying. <laughs> And then she read the book and she was like, oh, okay. <laughs> that was a bit silly of me, wasn't it? But I think that's really interesting. You know, it's not just men. Women are doing this as well. Because of course we are. We live in the same society. Mm. I always, you know, when I, like one of the things I get asked quite often is like, you know, but what about women who said this thing isn't sexist or, or women who do X, Y, Z? And it's like, mm. do you think we grow up in like a totally different vacuum where none of this stuff is, t is taught to us? Of course mm. it's not. We all live in the same society. We get the same messages. Mm. Of course women internalise misogyny and, and internalise the default male, mm. as in fact I did. But the, the guy on Twitter who said that, you know, women are everywhere now, that yeah. is a debate that kind of resonates a bit also in Norway, that uh, maybe someone would say feminism has gone too far, you know, the men are falling behind in education, mm -hmm. in certain professions, suicide rates, they are all in, not all of them, but <laughs> many of them are in prison, more than women. <laughs> all the Norwegian men are in prison? Yeah. Well, that's why, that's why they're not here, you know, they're all in prison. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, I've broken my mic. Oh. I was so shocked by the rate of crime yeah, amongst Norwegian men. We have all gone mad. <laughs> uh, no, but this is this is a debate that comes comes and goes, uh, and it's 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 about to come because there is a Norwegian book coming out called Invisible Men, mm -hmm. uh, which is sort of lifting lifting that uh, argument up to the to the forefront. And yeah. uh, I'm sure you know this debate. What, what is your response to men who would say, you know, but this is now your book is you know it's it's all days, you know, no, mm -hmm. it's the men that needs the equality. I mean the. <laughs> Where to even begin? Um, you know, the fact that men are more likely to be in prison than women has nothing to do with not collecting data on the female body and women being more likely to die from heart attacks. Like, it's a totally mm. separate issue. Mm. Um, so anyone... I, I struggle to imagine anyone actually making that argument 
because it doesn't make any sense. Mm. Like a woman uh, being less likely to die in a car crash because finally we uh, test cars on a female body Mm. is not going to make more men go to prison. Mm. (laughs) Like it's going to have no impact on that whatsoever. So um, what I'm writing about is not... You'd be amazed by the sort of arguments. (laughs) (laughs) So what I'm writing about is is not at all related Mm. to any of that. It's Mm. about we need to collect data on women. Currently, we collect data on men. So sure, of course, that there are um, these indications that men are not doing so well in certain areas, but it doesn't have anything to do with what I'm writing about Mm. in the book. Um, As for why they're not doing so well in certain areas... You know, I that's like that's not my area of expertise, so I'm now straying wildly outside of it. Um, but I would suggest that there are more things to do with the way we bring up men that are leading to these issues than anything to do with feminism. You know, if you look at the way the role for women has expanded in the past hundred years, there's been huge changes. The role for men really hasn't expanded that much. You know, the the ideal of what a man should be has changed really not that much. So is it surprising that the world has changed a lot? We haven't given space for men to change alongside it. I say we, I mean men. Um, You know, because I don't take responsibility for that. Um, I'd be delighted for men to expand their their role. Um, You know, I think it's got much more to do with that. I was interviewed by, um, actually, he's my ex- economics professor, uh, he had a podcast and he asked me to come on and debate feminism with him. And he was present, he was kind of asking me that kind of question. Like the, 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 the title of the podcast was, was like the battle of the sexist, who has it worse, which I would never normally do, but he's my ex-professor. So I was like, okay, fine, I'll do it. And, um, and, uh, you know, what, what we would, what I was talking to, to him about, because he was like, but I like being manly, right? I like boxing and I like, you know, I don't know, pumping iron. Or I can't remember what it was he said, but you know, he was like, I like being an alpha male. And I, and I was like, that's fine. No one's telling you you can't. The issue is saying that that's a specifically male character trait because there are plenty of women who also like to uh, win and uh, are competitive. Like that was one of the things he was saying. He was like, I'm really competitive. I'm competitive. I'm incredibly competitive. Um, You know, the issue is when we start saying that men must only be competitive and women must only be caring and that the men can't be caring and the women can't be competitive, which is nonsense. These are all human emotions and all humans feel all of them. But we frame certain emotions as male and certain emotions as female. And I feel like we've really put men into a box and uh, it's very unhealthy for them. Mm. So that, I would suggest, is why they're in prison and why they're not doing well at school and why they're... Not because a feminist is saying, guys, can we have a female car crash test dummy? Yeah. So in Britain, you put the men in a box, but we put them in prison, so it's yeah. more... <laughs> yeah, no one's got it right. No, I didn't say that. <laughs> Uh, we we just went through a pandemic with the corona mm. lockdown. And, yeah. um, and you touched uh, previously onto the unpaid labor of women. And during the pandemic, suddenly the unpaid labor of women Mm. and the paid care work of women uh, became some sort of success. You know, Mm -hmm. we we applauded. (laughs) So did you applaud 
the women because we, we only applauded the healthcare workers. You yeah, but most the... of them are women. <laughs> well, that's true, but but they weren't doing like the. Yeah, we so... were applauding as well. We were, right, we were actually applauding a that's, lot. That's uh, very Norwegian. The can I just say for, for salary later? But <laughs> <laughs> uh, but we we we, we kind of um, appreciated uh, yeah. at least no, unpaid sure, work. Of course, uh, and all over the world, women suddenly got much more unpaid work when all the kids were sent home yeah. from school and so on. Uh, but then <laughs> nothing really happened in the aftermath. I mean, we yeah. women's situation all over the world, uh, it's, it's worse after the pandemic. So, so what happened there? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's frustrating. I, I had the same experience. You know, I remember um, during the first lockdown, just being staggered by how much feminist economic analysis was suddenly on the front pages of all the newspapers. It was incredible um, talking about the impact and the contribution of unpaid care work to the economy. I was like, oh my God, is this, is it finally happening? Mm. And and then we started talking about how we were going to recover the economies. And they were like, we should probably invest in construction. And it was just, (laughs) how did the last two years just not happen? So, um, why did that happen? That's a really, really good question. And I, I struggle with the answer to questions where the answer isn't just, oh, it's because people don't know. Um, because clearly in this case, people do know. But I mean, has, has nothing happened? I think certain things have happened. Um, you know, I think a lot of companies are, have, have had to face up to the fact that unpaid care work is a problem for them, for their business. Um, and so they have been introducing all sorts of schemes. And obviously that is not as good as it being um, introduced by uh, a government because it will only benefit the women who work in those workplaces. But, you know, it's a start. It's a shift in a way of thinking, which I think is positive. Um, you know, whenever I, I think about this, I actually always think back to the 1975 strike in Iceland where all the women took a day off and... Um, you know, apparently Iceland just like ground to a halt. I, I interviewed two of the women who were uh, involved in organizing the strike. Um, and and they uh, they said, you know, it was just it was it was just a mess, right? Like the no one could phone abroad because all the yeah. all the, the women who were, you know, you had to physically like, you know, do the whatever, however old phones work. And and the women weren't there, you know, and the men had to take all their kids to work. Um, and the kids were in the background, like on the radio and stuff. Um, and the, the men had a terrible time. Um, and, but, you know, the, the, the feeling is that that did actually have an impact on Icelandic politics because suddenly care work became salient. And obviously the pandemic hasn't changed everything overnight. It didn't change everything in Iceland overnight when they did the, the day strike. But it has brought it to people's attention in a way that it hadn't before. So... You know, sure, it's it's disappointing. Certainly in the UK, very uh, we're, we're definitely going backwards. Um, but there are signs of hope. So, like for example, in the US, um, Hawaii passed uh, like all the the local councils have passed a feminist economic recovery plan. Um, there there was the Build Back Better Democratic plan. Unfortunately, it didn't pass. But the very fact that they were discussing it and discussing the importance of unpaid care work um, for the for the economy in you know one of the most powerful countries in the world is really significant. Um, they've made changes in Argentina, so like there are small glimmers of hope 
mm. around the world. Mm. Uh, this reference man in your book, is he also like a global a global man? I mean... He's a global uh, man, yeah. Yeah, he exists everywhere, <laughs> yeah. in uh, research everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> um, there are also different... Um, what I like about your book is the fact that uh, a woman is not only a woman. I mean, she's also a minority woman or a disabled woman mm-hmm. or a woman of different classes. Mm-hmm. Um, how is that? Uh, how is that affecting? I mean, do you have examples so certain women are affected more than mm. others? That was a really frustrating part of researching the book, actually, um, because the data just very rarely exists. So um, there were lots of things that I wanted to write about in the book that I couldn't write about because the data wasn't there. The sex disaggregated data wasn't there. Um, When it came to further disaggregating the data, so you could say disabled women, as you said, or, or ethnic minority women, it was just very, very rare. So, for example, you, you want, the first question you asked me was about we're used to sort of counting women, right? In the UK, you have statistics for female university professors. You have statistic statistics for university professors from ethnic minorities, but you don't have statistics for university professors, um, female university professors from ethnic minorities, you know, you don't have it split by sex. Mm. So um, you can't tell whether um, black female professors are less common than black male professors, which Mm. actually they are. Mm. And that matters. Mm. It matters that we don't have that data. Um, Where we do have data, um, there is evidence that certainly, for example, in medicine, um, the ethnic minority women have worse outcomes. Mm. So um, in the in the US, something I wrote about in the book, uh, women are, I think it was 243%, uh, black women, sorry, are 243% more likely to die during childbirth than white women. Um, the US has, I think it's the worst maternal morta- mortality rate in the developed world, and it's currently declining. Um, and when they... Uh, sort of looked at the the data by social class as well. They found that um, white women without a college degree was st- still had better outcomes than black women with a university degree. So, like, it wasn't even you know that uh, proportionately black women are more mm. likely to be poorer. Mm. Um, it was literally just black women have worse outcomes, um, and they don't yet have the the reason behind we don't that. Know why we don't know why. I mean, we can guess why. What what do you guess? Well, I mean, I guess racism. Mm -hmm. (laughs) When you've, you've like, alienated all the other, you know, eliminated all the other options, like, you're kind of left with racism. (laughs) Your book came out in 2019, which is three years ago. Uh, Mm. So it's not that long a time when it comes to science, but... Has there been any any changes? I mean, for instance, with the car crash theory, that's your biggest hit, as you say yourself. <laughs> uh, is there any cha- concrete changes from, from any of your research? No, not, not with the car crash test dummies, um, which is really frustrating because like, we've known for such a long time that women have much worse outcomes. Um, I've mentioned this quite a few times without telling you exactly what's going on with the cars, so let me explain what's going on with the cars. Um, so basically... Um, Historically, the only car crash test dummy that was used in car crash safety testing uh, was a dummy modelled on the body of an average man. And um, this is still the most commonly used crash test dummy. Um, It's used in all of the tests. In some tests, 
there is what's called a female car crash test dummy that's used. Um, so, for example, when I wrote the book, um, in the EU regulatory tests, this female car crash test dummy was used in one out of the five tests because um, women make up only one-fifth of the EU population. <laughs> and um, only in the passenger seat because also women in the EU don't drive. Um, and, uh, but to add uh, injury to injury... Um, this is not a female car crash test dummy. It's a scaled down version of the male dummy. And of course, women are not just small men. Um, there are other differences that are very important when it comes to car crash safety. So I, um, I mean, sort of things like, for example, men tend to carry more muscle mass in their upper body. Um, they tend to have more muscles in their neck. Um, there are different, there are pelvic differences, spinal column differences, um, and, let me talk about the pelvis for a second. So the male and the female pelvis is one of the most well-known differences. Um, and the, the seatbelt is designed to catch on the hip bones of a male pelvis. But because a female pelvis is obviously differently shaped, um, the seatbelt is less likely to work in that way. So if a woman is in a crash, the seatbelt can ride up and... Instead, all the full force of the crash, instead of being put on your bones, which can withstand the force of the crash, will crush your internal organs and could lead to a catastrophic bleed, um, which is, in fact, what happened to a woman that I interviewed. Um, and uh, it, she nearly died. You know, that, that's the kind of injury that could kill you. Um, uh, so... Those, those kinds of issues lead to the statistics that I've mentioned in passing, which are that in the event of a crash, uh, a woman wearing a seatbelt is 17% uh, more likely to die and 43% uh, more likely to be seriously injured than a man in the same car crash. Um, and so you hear statistics like that and you think, that's incredibly shocking. That's a huge disparity. We must fix this. We must design a female car crash test dummy and use her in all the tests. And the car manufacturers and the regulators say, it's quite expensive though. Can, can the women just like carry on getting injured? Would that be, uh, can we do that? Um, actually, I found it really telling. There was an interview with the technical director of Euro NCAP um, a couple of years ago, he, I think he's no longer the te technical director, although not because of this comment. Um, <laughs> and uh, he was asked about the disparity between male and female outcomes in car crashes. And he said, um, well, you could say the same about the elderly because they're not average either. Um, <laughs> uh, he also said, you know, now we've dealt with, um, with, with the sort of uh, average bodies, we can look more at the extremes. So, you know, but so that's like, <laughs> that kind of shows the problem that we have here. You know, even being shown these statistics, you have this guy defending them saying women aren't average and women are extreme. When, of course, women are both average and not extreme. We're exactly as average as men are. Um, but it's this, this bias you come back to. So, um, no, the fight for having a female car crash test dummy continues. There is a crash test dummy which has been designed that supposedly is much more modelled on a female body, like it has a female pelvis, for example. Um, it's still just the fifth percentile. And there's disagreement um, amongst engineers 
about whether that's good enough, whether we need an actual, fee, an average female car crash test dummy, not just a fifth percentile. Um, but anyway, there is this fifth percentile, but it's not currently being used um, because the regulators won't introduce it for basically no good reason. Money reason. Uh, <laughs> I'm not crying here because of a lack of a female <laughs> crash test dummy. I just had a cough. <laughs> Even though it's reason for crying it because it's, be. a li- it's, it's, it's a life or death yeah. uh, issue. We are getting close to the to the end of this conversation, but I want to ask you, what is your next uh, project? I know you have a podcast. Yeah. I listen to it. Yes. <clears throat> I recommend this. It's just <laughs> as talkative as this. <laughs> it's entertaining, uh, but also very serious uh, mm. in all its entertainment. Mm. But any other projects? So, yeah, so the podcast is basically taking the next step from Invisible Women and saying now that we, uh, now we've identified all these problems, what can we do to try and solve them? And so it's me going around. (laughs) (laughs) There, reference man, uh, microphone. Um, uh, What, you know, trying to find out how do do we solve these problems with varying degrees of success. Um, and I also, uh, so we're just working on season two of mm-hmm. that at the moment, which is in the in the sort of midst of coming out. Um, and then uh, I have an idea for a book mm-hmm. um, that I'm really keen to get going on. So as soon as the pod, this season of the podcast is finished, mm-hmm. I'm going to start writing the proposal for that book, and I'm not going to tell you what it's about. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> um, now I think we have to we have to finish off. Is there anything you want to say? It's like is there anything any part of society we still don't realize is kind of has this? Oh, I'm sure. Man. Like my book, I tried to be as comprehensive as I can, but obviously mm. there's loads of things that mm. could have been in the book that weren't in the book. For example, did you know? <laughs> this is something that really annoys me because I run, and um, I didn't realize that uh, male and female feet have slightly different shape. So female feet are not just small male feet. So um, I know, right, crazy. Um, But so women tend to have a higher arch, but they also tend to have a narrower heel in relation to their toes. They're more like a kind of V, uh, whereas men's feet are more like straight up and down. Obviously not, they're not totally rectangular, but you get the idea. But anyway, um, shoes are designed on a male last. So they're just shrunk down for women. And this is why fellow runners who are female, when you're running, you get that rubbing on your toe or you get your lift, your heel lifting up. It's because the shoes are designed for a small man and they're labelled for women, but they're not for women. So um, that's another example. Could have been in the book, wasn't in the book because I didn't know about it at the time. I'm very angry about it right now. Um, uh, yeah, so obviously, like, a different person would have written a different book with lots of different examples. It's just... Mm. These are the examples I, I decided to put in there. Like, I, I think one of the things that didn't make it into the book because I couldn't quite figure out how to fit it in was um, uh, sports science research, which is one of the worst for female representation. And there was one example that I came across that just... I think at this point I was kind of um, in a slightly hysterical state because I remember reading this paper and starting to laugh, even though it wasn't actually that funny. Um, But um, I'd read so many papers, I mean, so many of the papers that I read said, uh, where they bothered to mention women, said, um, this could be different in women, but we don't actually know because we haven't got the data. Um, And there was this one paper that was looking at um, 
the like the, the classic uh, advice for people who are going to do endurance sports, so like running a marathon or whatever, is to carb load. And it turns out that doesn't really work for women uh, because women uh, metabolize carbs differently to men. Um, and so in order for a woman to get um, not even as much benefit as men, but like something like a similar kind of benefit, she would have to eat so much that it would undo the benefit of the carbs because she would have eaten too much. Um, and so they said, uh, so we speculate that because, so women, uh, like I'm not, I'm not a doctor, but it's something along the lines of women um, metabolize fat before they metabolize uh, carbs. Um, and so we speculate that perhaps women should fat load before they do a race. But the only fat loading studies have been done in men, so we don't know. <laughs> so it was kind of funny. Um, but I, I also, you know, you have to like be sympathetic to me because I had been reading these studies like for a long time and I was not in a good frame of mind. Thank you so much, Carla. We have, we have to stop now because there are things going on in this room after us. There should be someone here. <laughs> You've been listening to a podcast from the House of Literature in Oslo, presenting adapted versions of lectures and conversations featuring international writers and thinkers. You can find more episodes and subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud and our website. The music is by Apotek.